In Colossians 1.28, the Apostle Paul gives us great insight into Christianity when he says, we proclaim him. At that, we really realize that at the heart of the Christian movement is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. The person and work of Christ should be at the heartbeat of any proclamation of the Christian faith. And so we come to the gospel accounts, we realize the gospels are actually a very carefully selected exposition to bring into us our thinking, our minds, our hearts, who Jesus Christ is. If you look at the ministry of Christ, his public ministry from his baptism until his passion on the cross, uh, how many days did Jesus spend in public ministry? Well, we're not exactly sure, but it's somewhere between 1,095 days and 1,316 days. So basically around 1,000 to 1,300 days, Jesus is in public ministry and he accomplishes the redemption of the world in a little over 1,000 days. Not bad, huh? Um, so, and yet, if you go to the New Testament and you actually look through the Gospels and you count the number of days that's actually given to us and presented to us in the New Testament, you may be surprised to know that we have only access to about 50 days of the 1,000 to 1,300 days, potentially in life of Christ, from his baptism to his passion. And what does that tell us? Now, you remember that John actually brings this up in his gospel, in John's gospel. And if you remember the last, uh, in fact, literally the last verse of John's gospel, he had earlier made the point in the chapter 20 that, I have written these things that, he, that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So John is saying, I've collected these sayings for a particular purpose to reveal who Christ is. But he says in the last verse of the whole book, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So if we actually had you know, if we could have written down everything Christ did and said and taught and miracles and parables, then the whole world would not contain the books that could be written. So the fact that the, the gospel writers give us such a select number of days, 50 days, uh, in the life of Jesus, means that we come upon a day like this. This is a day in the life of Jesus in our text. We are seeing a day, a slice of the ministry of Christ which the gospel writer believes, and by the way, this particular day is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So three of the gospel writers are saying, this is a day you really need to know about what happens. And one of the reasons that this day is so significant and important is because in this day, an amazing intersection takes place, doesn't it? You have the intersection of two completely different people. People that, from the point of the social, kind of religious you know, uh, spectrum of the day, these two people could not be more different than the Jairus and this woman with the issue of blood. And they, yet they both cross on this day. They both actually find themselves falling down at the feet of Jesus on this day, already preparing us for that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Jairus is called in this passage four times, I mean, he can't seem to not mention it every time for Jairus as the synagogue ruler. 
The translation here said leader, but it's the word is archon, which means ruler. He is a, can I use the phrase, head honcho. All right? He's a somebody. He has name. It's very actually very unusual to have the name of someone that receives a, a sort of a miracle in the, in, in the Gospels. To have the name is really important. He has name. He has rank. He has position. He has biography. He has power. He has everything that you would want in the ancient world. Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Verse 24, 22, 35, 36, 38, repeatedly call him the synagogue ruler, the archon of the synagogue. Now, he's the kind of person that if you, you know, were in the ancient world and you were living at the time that he lived and you saw him, then you'd go home that night and say to your spouse, hey, you're not going to believe it. Guess who I saw today? I saw Jairus. This is that kind of person. Or to be invited into his home. He comes, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and pleads with Jesus to come to his home and because his daughter is dying. And the minute this happened, this rearranged the schedule. You know, the disciples, they, whoever was in charge of like his itinerary that day, okay, scratch it out, Jairus' his house. Everything else gets put aside. One of the great things about the ministry of Christ is his capacity to be interrupted. All right? God doesn't mind being interrupted. He's not in a rush, not in a hurry. And so they're on their way to Jairus' house, and that's to be contrasted with the woman that we meet that will come up in a moment who we don't know her name. She's unknown in the ancient world. She's a nobody. She moves, she knows that when Jairus came, the crowd split for, her, for him, right? He's somebody. The minute he comes up, they all make a way for him. Here comes Jairus. What does he want with the master? This woman had no such, no one noticed her. She was actually, not only was she, had no name, no biography, no rank, no position, no power, but we're told that she had an issue of blood. Now, if you know from the book of Leviticus, in fact, I'll go ahead and read you the passage if I can find it really quickly here. But in Leviticus chapter 15, it specifically says about someone in this situation, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. What does that mean? What that means is this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. Now, what that tells you, you should put this in your mind, what this means for her. This woman is, I mean, she's not just a shut-in, she's a shut-out. She has no access to God, temple, priest, or healing. She's a shutout. She's unclean. No one can come in contact with her. She is a person who is unclean, unallowed to go into the temple. She couldn't consult with a priest. She couldn't be prayed for. She is completely shut out. So think about this situation. Here is, uh, is Jairus, who is the archon. He's the synagogue ruler. He's like the bishop. He's the head honcho. Everyone separates for him. People say, hey, look where we were today. He's everything people wanted in the ancient world, honor, position, etc. And here's this woman who's a nobody, issue of blood. In addition to her being unclean, we find out as well in the text, she's impoverished because she had spent all she had on doctors for 12 years. So you might say that these, this Jairus and this woman 
are kind of like a human parentheses uh, between which lies the entire human race. All of us fall between Jairus and this woman. And yet both of these, we find them falling at the feet of Jesus. This woman, uh, in a very different situation, she is making her way through this crowd and she realizes that Jesus is coming. Now you notice that this woman has had an issue of blood for how many years? How many years? Twelve years. Jairus's daughter, how old is Jairus's daughter? Twelve years. So we actually have two 12-year-old things that are emerging that intersect on this day. This one has a 12 years issue of blood. This daughter, we don't know if she had a chronic illness or what, but she's now 12 years old at the point of death. And they both intersect on this day. Now the woman who no crowds will break for her, she determines kind of the trajectory of Jesus' motion and his walking because he's on his way to Jairus' house, right? So she decides to position herself in a way so when he comes by, when, he walk, when they walk by, she reach out and just touch the hem of his garment. And so she does this. She expects the whole thing to happen without being seen, and her greatest hope was somehow she might come in contact with this great healer, Jesus of Nazareth. And so as Jesus walks by, she reaches out, and just as he passes, she just touches the hem of his garment. Now, we need to push the pause button at this point. Because what is the expectation if you are a good, law-abiding, God-fearing Jewish person who knows your Bible and you're to look at the situation, she is reaching out, this woman who's unclean, she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. What is the expectation? This is really important. The only expectation you could have is that this woman would transmit her uncleanliness to Jesus. She would make this clean rabbi unclean. We know that by particularly by looking at the book of Haggai. I hope that you read Haggai this morning for your devotionals. <laughs> um, but in case you did not, I'll remind you in Haggai chapter 2, the prophet raises this question in verses 12 and 13. And he poses two scenarios. <coughs> he says, well, what if <coughs> someone comes in and they're carrying consecrated meat that's been dedicated to God. This is clean, consecrated meat by the priest being brought into the temple to lay it in the presence of God. And on the way in, it happens to brush up against, by mistake, a, someone's cloth or someone's you know, clothing, whatever. It brushes up against uh, someone's ordinary clothing on the way into the temple. Will that meat, that clean meat, make that clothing clean? And the prophet says, no, it will not. It will make the, the clothing unclean, or it'll make the meat unclean. Okay, let's turn the situation around. What if you bring something unclean and you place it on the clean altar? Will the clean altar make that, un, uh, make that clean? Says, no, in that case, the same thing. It will always work that direction, never in reverse. Clean touches unclean, clean becomes unclean. Unclean touches clean, clean becomes unclean. It never happens any other way. So the only expectation that we have from the Old Testament is that when this woman touches Jesus, she will transmit uncleanliness to him. Well, this is what Mark's whole point is. Mark's, this whole, this is why 
he said, of all the days, 1,316 days, whatever it is, I'm going to choose this day to include in my Gospels because I want you to know that something altogether new is at work in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is reversing things. Praise the Lord. Jesus is turning the tables on sin and death and contagion. In this chapter, we'll see two great reversals, the one reversal of sickness and ultimately the reversal of death itself. He's showing that something is new at work. So when she touches the hem of his garment, we take away the pause button now, immediately she senses in her body that she has been made whole. She has caught Jesus' wholeness. He didn't catch her uncleanliness. It went the other direction. She was made whole. She was made well. The shalom of God was upon her. The healing of God upon her. Well, what, now you remember the text clearly says they are in the middle of a crowd because they're all going down to Jairus' house. Every hanger-on won't be a part of that, right? Big crowd, he'll push in and shoving. And so this woman in the midst of the crowd had reached out and touched him with his garment and Jesus stopped and asked what was seen to be crazy. He said, who touched me? Now the disciples are like, it's like if you, you left chapel here, we all just come pushing a chapel, you're pushing and shoving, the people all around you. I know you won't shove you out of this chapel, hopefully, but you know, you're pushing, there are people all around you, and someone turns and says, hey, buddy, who touched me? I'm like, what? What do you mean, who touched me? Peter says, well, here it says disciples, but we know from Luke's gospel it was Peter, predictably, who said, Lord, you see the crowd against you, how can you ask who touched me? See, we're learning again another lesson here about Jesus. Jesus is the most sensitive man who ever lived. Now, everyone in this room, we all come to this room by virtue of our salvation before God. We are here because we acknowledge that we have brokenness before God. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. And think about it. If One definition of sin that, that I like is sin is all the ways that we elect the absence of God in our lives. When we have opportunities to elect God's presence, we elect his absence. We have places in our lives that are broken, where we have God's absence in our lives, where we need God's fullness, his presence, his healing. And isn't it good to know that the minute this woman touched even the hem of his garment, Jesus knew all about it. He knows every person's situation in this room. He knows your struggles. He knows your pains. You have situations with your children, your grandchildren, your roommates, schoolmates. Every situation you can imagine, the Lord knows it intimately. It's amazing. Think about it. And Jesus says to the incredulous look of the disciples, I felt power go out from me. And the woman, of course, eventually comes and confesses the whole thing to him, fell at his feet, trembling. And please don't miss what he says to her in verse 34. Remember, this is the woman that has no name, no rank, no biography, nobody. She's impoverished. She's unclean. She was a shut out. And the, she couldn't go to the temple 
But praise God, the temple was coming to her. Hallelujah. Because Jesus embodies the temple. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the mercy seat. All of the verities of the covenant of the Old Testament and the temple are embodied in Jesus Christ. That's the whole, that's the whole incarnation. You know, uh, we, the, the temple of God has come to us. God has made his dwelling among us. The incarnation is God walking in our midst. This woman had access to everything that the eternal God had access to because she's in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to her a title much greater than archon or ruler of the synagogue or any other titles that we have. She says, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in the shalom of God. Your faith has healed you. Daughter, there's no greater title. There's no greater admonition from God, no greater way of God speaking to any of us than to speak to us as his daughter or his son. And I hope that tonight when you lay down in bed that one of your prayers will be, Lord God, thank you that I am a son or a daughter of the living God because of the gospel and what God has done through Jesus Christ. So at this point, uh, she is healed. Now, you have to realize at this point, this is her, you might say, hallelujah moment. I mean, she's been waiting for this for 12 years. She has been healed, but at this moment, because of the delay of the crowd and Jesus being interrupted yet again, Jesus is not worried. Jesus is not in a rush. He doesn't get into a panic. In fact, this sermon is entitled, The Three-Mile-Per-Hour God. Because Jesus, uh, they say the walking pace is around three miles per hour. Now, think about all the ways we rush in, you know, here and there, rush in here, get on planes, we're going everywhere. Jesus accomplishes the redemption of the world at three miles per hour. Let that encourage you. It's okay. God's got it. He's got it covered. He is redeeming the world at three miles per hour. He didn't run down to Jarvis' house. He's simply moving according to God's call for him. So they come up to him. At the very moment that this woman's having her blood healed and her issue of blood healed, she's having her prayers answered. At this point, Jairus is down there at his house saying, or Jairus' servant saying, where is God? God didn't show up. Where was God when I needed him? See, some of you are in situations, I mean, many of you have 12-year things you're praying for, right? Things you've been praying for 12 years. And you don't know whether you're in the 11th year, the, uh, you know, the... 11th month, the 30th day, or where this is really a 15-year problem, 20-year challenge. I have things that my wife and I have been praying for for years, years, daily prayers. We're waiting for God to answer. So Jairus that day, at that moment at least, believed at him and his little girl, Jesus didn't show up when he hoped that she would. So there's mourning and wailing, and they even said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Sometimes we just want to give up. Lord, it's too late. But Jesus says to him and to all of us, in verse 36, don't be afraid. Isn't that great? Don't be afraid. Fear not. One of the great sayings of Christ throughout the Gospels. They go on down there, and he brings in Peter, James, and John, into the synagogue ruler's home. And Jesus actually says on his way in, why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
This is already anticipating what St. Paul will proclaim in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, that from God's perspective, death is like sleep. Did you realize that? God understands death as simply sleep. Now, if, you, if you're not in the Lord, of course, then death is, is eternal and final. But if you're in the Lord, when you die, it's like sleep. On resurrection day, you're awakened to everlasting life and the resurrection body. All right? Praise the Lord. The resurrection body is coming your way. It's coming your way. They laughed at him. Again, God's perspective different than ours. He puts them all out, took the father and mother in there, and he takes the little girl by the hand. Now, here's a little 12-year-old girl who's just died. Think about it as a parent. The agony of this moment. He takes her by the hand, and then the gospel writers, they do something they do very, very rarely in the Bible, but they do it here. Most of the time, you get the Bible in translation. I realize that everybody here realizes that Jesus, when he preached and taught, like the Sermon on the Mount or any of the parables of, him, of his teaching, that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That was the language of his discourse of his day. So the Bible comes to us spoken in Aramaic. It's written down in Koine Greek. And then you get it in your Bibles in ESV or NIV or whatever translation you use in English. But every now and then the gospel writers say, this will not do. We can't do this. We, we don't want to have any kind of thing between you and Jesus, what he actually said on that day. I mean, the most famous example of this, of course, on the cross, the cry of dereliction from the cross, where Jesus quotes the psalm, Psalm 22. But when Jesus cries out on the cross, they can't just give it to you in English. They want you to first hear it as if you were there at the foot of the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of those moments where you've got to hear it from his lips, the full suffering and pain of Christ bearing the sins of the world. So amazingly, yet here, in this rather intimate moment, this is not some public cry of dereliction. This is in someone's home. But it's a 12-year-old girl that's died. And the gospelers want you to be brought in to the intimacy of the moment. There's Peter, James, John, the mother and father, the little girl laying there, and you are there. And you're there, and I'm there, because we actually hear the words, Talitha Kaum. That's exactly what Jesus said that day. Which means, as the text says, Little girl, get up. Get up. In seed form, I mean, this is from the gospel point of view, this is him already telling us something new is altogether at work in Jesus. He's not just healing diseases. He's not just healing infirmities. But ultimately, he is reversing death itself. He is the resurrection and the life. I mean, that your whole life is spent running from sickness and disease and infirmity. And, you know, you don't bound up the steps like you used to. We spend our whole lives just trying to run from all of that. And someday we eventually fall into the grave. And then God's Messiah comes along and says, I'm reversing all of that. I'm reversing all of that. Where there's death, now there's life. Where there's sickness, there's wholeness. Where there's sin, there's grace. This is the good news of the gospel. And this, this whole passage is about God 
coming forward as the great reverser, the one who reverses things through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I must close with a story from our own tradition here at Asbury that tells us how important it is for us to be bold about who Jesus Christ is in the world. We were founded by Henry Clay Morrison. Our students here all know this, but for those who are here, friends for the day, uh, we're founded by Henry Clay Morrison, one of the great camp meeting preachers of his day, one of the great orators of his day. And when he was, uh, he actually, in, when he was 33 years old, he became a full-time evangelist. And when he was 39 years old, this would have been the year 1896, this is long before he started Asbury Seminary, he was invited to go down to Baltimore to, to preach the gospel. Now normally, as you know, camp meetings happen in the summertime, and this was not in the summertime, it was the wintertime, uh, but it was an ordinary kind of revival service. And he got down there, and he found out to his surprise, after taking the train all the way to Baltimore, he lived here in Kentucky, he got down to, to Maryland, and he found out that the, the they, in those they called it the presiding elder, what we call the district superintendent today of the Methodist Church, refused to let him preach. His crime, according to the records, was he was too enthusiastic. <laughs> he didn't want this revival preacher down there maybe reviving these Methodists. So he was barred from preaching. And they said, I don't want anybody preaching and him preaching to churches down here. But he was already down there in Baltimore. He already arrived. And so what are they going to do? Well, normally if it was the summertime, and this is what he did a lot, he would go and preach at the camp meetings. Uh, but there was no camp meeting going on in the wintertime. So he's down there. Well, one Methodist pastor came to him and said, Dr. Morrison, come and preach at my church. We would love to have you. He said, how can you do this? He said, well, he said, I'm a nobody. I have the smallest church in the conference. I have the lowest salary in the conference. Where can they send me? <laughs> I'm already at the bottom. Come and preach at my church. So he said, great, we'll do it. So he goes in this church, tiny little country church, you know, and he got in there and he preached the gospel. At the end, he had an altar call. And the amazing thing about the altar call, one person responded. He's a young man who was 12 years old. See, God had another 12-year-old story unfolding. And H.C. Morrison went down and knelt down and led this little boy to Christ. And of course, he asked him, what is your name? And he told him, E. Stanley Jones. One of the great missionaries of the church, certainly one of the greatest graduates of Asbury, who went out and was faithful to Christ all over the world. You know, the great thing about the gospel is that God takes seeds and he does his work. Jesus didn't care whether it was Jairus or an unnamed, unknown woman. Jesus was just about unfolding the kingdom. And that is one of the great lessons of ministry. We don't worry about climbing denominational ladders. We don't worry about our titles and our positions or any of that. All of that, at the end of the day, means nothing. What matters is that we're faithful to the gospel. 
we're faithful to be who God's called us to be in spreading his kingdom around the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing insights of your gospel in the lives of Jairus, his little daughter, and this dear woman. Help us to walk through the world. Help us to slow down to three miles per hour and be sensitive to those around us. For many of us, as we brush and rush through life, life is a bunch of accidental contacts. Lord, help us to have redemptive contacts. Help us to notice things around us and help us to be a channel of your healing for a lost and broken world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.